Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Hurricane Ian's made landfall in Florida. It is expected to unleash catastrophic conditions that will affect the majority of the state. The storm is a powerful Category 4, coming ashore with top sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. It brings life-threatening storm surge. Some areas could receive as much as two feet of rain as the storm slows. Pastor Trent Morgan with the Assembly Church in Sebring, a town located in the center of Florida, says he's worried the powder outages, which began this morning in some parts, will last for days and severely impacts some of the most vulnerable residents who don't have backup generators or other assistance. Down here, there's a lot of people who do not have city water, so they're on wells. So if they lose power, then they don't have access to water. That's a, a big concern, especially for the elderly that live out, out of the city limits. Ian made landfall at Cayo Costa, the same spot where Hurricane Charlie came ashore in 2004, also as a Cat 4 storm. President Biden is urging Florida residents to heed the warnings of local officials. NPR's Frank Ordonez reports Biden also says oil and gas companies should not use the storm as a reason to hike gas prices. Speaking at a hunger summit, President Biden said he had spoken with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis about preparations for the hurricane. And my message has been absolutely clear, is that, uh, that we are on alert and in action. We've approved every request Florida has made. He also warned oil and gas executives to not raise prices at the pump saying the storm should only have a small and temporary impact on production. Do not, let me repeat, do not. Do not use this as an excuse to raise gasoline prices or gouge the American people. He said America is watching. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Moscow-backed leaders of four Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine are taking steps to formally join the Russian Federation. We have the latest from NPR's Jason Bobian. The Kremlin-backed leaders of the separatist regions of Luhansk and Donetsk say they're traveling to Moscow to negotiate formally becoming part of the Russian Federation. Russian-installed officials in occupied parts of Zaporizhia and Kherson also claim the ballot results give them the mandate to join Russia. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky denounced the referendums as illegal and said annexation of any part of Ukraine would eliminate the possibility of peace talks with Moscow. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the West will never recognize these votes. Russian Foreign Ministry, meanwhile, issued a statement saying the referendums were held in full accordance with the law. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Krivery, Ukraine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Springfield-based gunmaker Smith & Wesson is being accused of illegally focusing on young men at risk of violence with its ads for firearms. That's according to a lawsuit filed in Illinois today. The suits were filed by people wounded while they attended an Independence Day parade in suburban Chicago when a 22-year-old gunman opened fire, killing seven people. Lawyers say Smith & Wesson should have known the advertising campaign would appeal to a dangerous group of customers, including the parade gunman. WBR has reached out to the company for comment. Starting next week, Massachusetts residents using the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, will see a 12 percent increase in benefits. 
The state is making a cost-of-living adjustment. It's based in part on the rising cost of utilities. And New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick says quarterback Mac Jones likely will not practice today after he suffered an ankle injury Sunday against Baltimore. Belichick says he doesn't know whether Jones will be able to play this weekend in Green Bay. Veteran backup Brian Hoyer would start in Jones' absence. In the forecast, pretty nice out there again right now. Look for a few clouds around tonight and then clearing out by morning. Temperatures about 53 overnight. Tomorrow should be sunny. Highs around the mid-60s. 70 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye set to music by the Rolling Stones October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And DuckDuckGo, Committed to making privacy online simple, used by tens of millions, they offer Internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified, at DuckDuckGo.com. Hurricane Ian has made landfall in Florida with 150-mile-an-hour winds. We will take you there in just a few minutes at 90.9 WBUR. In the meantime, we are asking you to help support the kind of news that you get on breaking news stories, feature news stories, Uh, Whatever you hear on WBUR has only come with the help of listeners like you. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Carrie Young, our senior education reporter. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, let's just think about why you choose WBUR every day. And uh, uh, for me, why I listen, it's because... The station really brings a deeper examination of our world and the local community. Just listening to this newscast break, we've got reporters or NPR has reporters down in Florida talking about Hurricane Ian. But then also in our local newscast, we have important information about nutrition assistance benefits going up. So please consider supporting that kind of information. Make a modest contribution that will have a big impact on your community every day. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And special incentives. We have uh, an offer of a pair of tickets to the show of your choice at the Huntington Theater Company's 22-23 season. That's thanks to your contribution of $30 per month. We will put your money to work to bring you more of the journalism you rely on. The fantastic Huntington Theater Company. You can look up the offerings for this year. Choose one. That's your gift uh, for a pair of tickets for uh, $30 a month. So by that, you become a sustainer. That means that we can count on your contribution. You can count on giving it to us and change it if you like. Uh, That's certainly allowable, but it means more stability, both uh, on our part and on yours. And that's really what we're striving for. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Think of the role that WBUR has in your daily life. Radio Boston, all things considered. Here and now, fresh air, morning edition, whatever it is that you listen to, please put a dollar value on it right now. The number once again, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Hurricane Ian made landfall today in southwest Florida as a powerful Category 4 storm with winds at 150 miles per hour. The storm has moved slowly up the state all day long, bringing with it a massive storm surge, flooding, and nonstop rain. The impacts from this storm will be felt for hours and hours in the area. And here to give us an update is NPR's Liz Baker, who is in St. Petersburg, just north of where Ian came ashore. Hey, Liz. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so can you just describe what some of the first 
impacts of Ian have looked like there? Well, lots of wind so far with gusts over 100 miles per hour. Power is starting to go down all over the coast. I was driving around a little while ago and saw some downed tree branches and some flooded roads. Um, but this area where I'm in isn't feeling the worst of this hurricane. The path of this storm changed pretty significantly in the last day or so, <laughs> shifting the major impact further south to Fort Myers and Punta Gorda. And Ian is now taking the same path that Hurricane Charlie took in 2004. That was another Category 4, by the way, also with 150 mile per hour winds. But Ian is still much bigger and packs a more powerful punch. Wait, so were residents there surprised by this shift in the storm's path? Well, they shouldn't have been. Forecasters had warned that people in this area should prepare for a hit like this, even though it did look for a while that the storm might go further to the north. Uh -huh. um, in a briefing this afternoon, Governor Ron DeSantis expressed concern that the change in Ian's path caught some people unaware by the worst part of the storm. There were people that evacuated Tampa Bay to Fort Myers because you see the different weather tracks, and it was thought that it would go hit Tampa, maybe go up the coast. And that was not that long ago. And DeSantis says the Coast Guard and Florida National Guard are standing by to mount a massive rescue effort. Mm. Well, Liz, it's actually not the wind that's the most dangerous here. It's the water, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, especially this big storm surge that we've seen. Yeah. It might end up being as high as 18 feet of seawater coming on shore. Yeah. Um, I've been seeing some photos on Twitter from Fort Myers Beach, which show water over the first floor of homes there now. And uh, you can see on traffic webcams from Sanibel Island, water overtaking the roads very, very, very quickly. In just about 20 minutes, it goes from dry to overflowing. And that really shows you why the storm surge is such a major concern here. Um, around noon, Tampa Bay actually had a reverse surge, which means that the direction of the hurricane spin pulled water out of the bay. And enough people went down to see that rare view of a waterless waterfront that the wow. police had to ask people to please stop hurricane sightseeing right now. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we heard Governor DeSantis there talk about evacuating. Any idea how many people might have just stayed behind instead of evacuating? It's hard to know. Um, authorities believe that the majority of people have evacuated, especially the most dangerous areas like barrier islands. Um, but, you know, there's always people who stay home either because they can't afford to leave or they don't want to or even they underestimate the risk. Um, so earlier today, I was out driving around a mobile home park in St. Petersburg and came across 90-year-old Paul Lycia. He was packing a few things into his car because he had planned on evacuating later tonight, but then decided to leave early. His family helped convince him that it just wasn't worth the risk of staying, even with a roof strapped down against the wind. You don't know, you know, that's the problem. I said, you know, we have the hurricane straps here. I said, the house will be gone, but the straps will be here with the chassis, so families after me to get out of town. <laughs> He's planning on driving north to get out of the storm's path. And also, that'll be a pretty long drive because this is a huge storm, almost 250 miles across. That is NPR's Liz Baker in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. No state in the eastern U.S. has grown faster in recent years than Florida. There are three million more people living there now than there were in 2010, which means more people in buildings than ever are in the path of destructive hurricanes like Ian. NPR's Becky Sullivan is here to talk more about this. Hi, Becky. Hey there. So we'll get back to the hurricane in a moment. But for now, mm -hmm. let's just zoom out. Becky, why has Florida seen this big influx of people in the last decade? 
you know, people come to Florida for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's warm year round. There are beaches. Housing there is relatively cheap. Um, a big one is there's no individual income tax, which is great if you're retired. Uh, and then for retired people and immigrants, especially, there are, there are a lot of big communities of people there like them. So all of this means that even as overall U.S. population growth has slowed to a crawl, Florida is still growing. Something like 600 Americans move to Florida every day, according mm. to the Census Bureau, which is way more than any other state. Um, and so across the country since 2010, only two other big metro areas have grown faster than Orlando. Jacksonville and Tampa uh, are near the top of that list too. And then smaller cities like Fort Myers and Cape Coral have also grown a ton. Um, and you know some of those cities, Fort Myers, Tampa, of course, here on the west coast of Florida, bearing the brunt of Hurricane Ian right now. And Becky, more people means that more folks are likely to feel the impact of a natural disaster, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's more likely than ever that a hurricane will strike a major population center in Florida because there's so many more of them and because they're bigger. I talked to a researcher about this. Uh, his name is Stephen Strader, a professor at Villanova who studies how humans are vulnerable to natural disasters. He called Florida's population boom an example of the, quote, expanding bullseye effect. Mm. Basically, he said, imagine an archer drawing a bow, taking aim at a target. If the target is really small, it's hard to hit. But if it gets bigger and bigger, it gets easier and easier to strike. The difference is, is instead of an arrow, we have hazard events like hurricanes and tornadoes. And then instead of having targets, we are the targets. Our cities are developed areas. And nowhere is that most readily seen is along our coastline. Another way of looking at it is uh, billion dollar storms used to be very rare. Now there are 10 or more every year. The most costly storm ever was Katrina in 2005, followed by Harvey in 2017. And depending on how Ian plays out over these next few days, um, it could be up there. Becky, we heard from a climate scientist earlier this week about how warmer temperatures are linked to higher intensity storms. So mm -hmm. walk us through in the minute we have left the challenges posed by that, plus a growing population. Totally. Yeah, experts told me that this is a huge communication for local officials because newcomers to Florida aren't always educated about hurricanes and their intensity. So they might not know the answer to questions like how sturdy is their house? Do you have impact windows, hurricane shutters? Are you in a flood prone area? Do you know your evacuation route? Um, or if you plan to stay, do you have the supplies you need? And so, you know, people experience is a thing. People who've been through hurricanes are better prepared for the next one, but this is a part of Florida. Um, that has been, you know, relatively lucky in recent years in terms of hurricane frequency, um, and a lot of people have moved here since. So bottom line, essentially every city we've named in this segment so far is going to feel this hurricane. Mm. Even the inland cities like Orlando and Lakeland could see massive rainfall, which can cause major damage. Mm, so okay. if you're in Florida right now, it's very important to listen to local officials and take every measure that you can to stay safe. NPR's Becky Sullivan, thank you. You're welcome. Drugs like magic mushrooms and LSD can act as powerful antidepressants, but they also produce mind-bending side effects. Well, NPR's John Hamilton reports on a drug based on LSD that appears to treat depression in mice without taking the animals on a trip. Antidepressants like Prozac act on the brain's serotonin system. So do psychedelic drugs. But with psychedelics, the effect can occur in hours instead of weeks and last for months. Brian Schoikett from the University of California, San Francisco, says the best evidence so far involves people with depression who take psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. There's really interesting reports about people getting great results out of this after just a few doses. One study found the results can last a year or more, perhaps because the drug causes the brain to rewire. 
Psychedelic drugs, though, require medical supervision and a therapist to guide a patient through their hallucinatory experience. Shoykit says that's an impractical way to treat millions of people with depression. The society would like a molecule that you can, you know, get prescribed and just take. You know, go home and, and take, and you don't need a guided tour for your trip. So Shoykit and a large team of researchers are looking for that molecule. They started with a virtual collection of about 75 million hypothetical drugs likely to act on the brain's serotonin system. Shoykit says ultimately the scientists focused on just two. They had the best properties. They were the most potent. And when you gave them to a mouse, they got into the brain at high concentrations. A test of one of these drugs found it did seem to relieve depression in mice. A depressed mouse tends to give up quickly when placed in an uncomfortable situation, like being dangled from its tail. But the same mouse will keep struggling if it gets an antidepressant drug like Prozac, ketamine, or psilocybin. Dr. Brian Roth, a psychiatrist at UNC Chapel Hill and another member of the team, says the molecule based on LSD had a similar effect. We found our compound had essentially the same antidepressant activity, at least acutely, so one day later. But were those mice tripping? Apparently not. Psychedelic drugs cause mice to twitch frequently in a distinctive way, and Roth says that wasn't the case with mice that got the team's LSD-based compound. We were, I would say, surprised to see that they had no psychedelic drug-like actions at all. Studies in people are still a ways off. Even so, Roth says the approach points to a class of depression drugs that would have a huge advantage over products like Prozac and Zoloft, which are taken every day. The difference with psychedelics and the compounds that we're excited about is that it's basically one and done. Patients basically take one dose, and then they're fine. That's an optimistic view, says David Olson of the University of California, Davis. Olson, who helped create a non-psychedelic version of the drug Ibogaine, says he's skeptical that a single dose of these new compounds can eliminate depression. But I do think they take us a step closer to a cure rather than simply treating disease symptoms. Olson says drugs based on psychedelics have the potential to help people who haven't responded to existing antidepressants. And because they work immediately, he says, they could be integrated into a psychotherapy session. You might imagine a day where a patient could take one of these drugs at home and then interact with their therapist via virtual platform like Zoom. The new research appears in the journal Nature. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, natural gas has been leaking into the Baltic Sea from the Nord Stream pipeline. European leaders say the leaks in the line that run from Russia to Germany are an act of sabotage. Stocks have rebounded from their low of the year. The Dow snapped its six-day losing streak today. It gained 1.88 percent, or 549 points, to close at 29,684. S&P picked up nearly 2 percent to finish at 37.19. The Nasdaq rose a little more than 2 percent to finish the day at 11,052. Marketplace has all the details at 6.30. It's now 4.20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new Museums at Night events, harvardartmuseums.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds, salemstate.edu graduate. 
Should be another nice night at the ballpark tonight as the Red Sox and Baltimore Orioles meet up for Game 3 of 4. Rich Hill pitches for Boston. Breezy and ultimately clear overnight tonight after a few clouds move in and then out. About the mid-50s at the lowest. Tomorrow and Friday should only make it to the mid-60s with sunshine both days. 70 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com gbfb. And the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum, in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, along with Carrie Young, our senior education reporter. And speaking of education, we know you learn something every time you listen to WBUR. We hope you feel something as well and come away with a memorable experience. And the stories that we present, including Carrie Young's fantastic stories, the voices that she gets, are a prime example of that. So we hope right now you will... Listen to WBUR because you love it, and you will donate because you love it as well. 1-800-909-9287 is the number, or WBUR.org. We are, our fall fundraiser is rounding toward the end right now. We're hoping not to end it without you. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Lisa. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point about having this be like educational programming. You learn something every time you listen. But I also think it's just interesting, too, those first two segments about the expanding bullseye in hurricane zones with so many more people moving in. But then also the segment about the magic mushroom drugs and their impact on depression, or at least the studies about that. That, you know, I I got so much from that, but I also didn't want the segments to end. They were so interesting. So please consider supporting that kind of programming at WBUR.org. And when you give, you can get a pair of tickets to the show of your choice in the Huntington Theater Company's 2022-2023 season. And that's our thanks for your contribution of $30 per month or more. Uh, We will put your money to work uh, to bring you more of the journalism you rely on. And we actually recently talked with Temple Gill, the Director of Public Affairs and Strategic Partnerships at the Huntington. She told us about the Huntington's new artistic director. Her name is Loretta Greco, and she just started with us on July 1st. And she is terrific. She has boundless energy. She has already made such great inroads with the staff at the Huntington. She so wants to be a part of the Boston community. And I know that she's going to have a a real impact here. And you can give monthly at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And once again, that's a pair of tickets to the show of your choice at the Huntington Theater uh, for uh, $30 a month. And we hope you will take advantage of that. Some great shows. Sing Street is there right now. Joe Turner's Come and Gone is coming up. The Art of Burning and Kissing. Separate things, the art of burning, not the art of kissing as well. So we hope that one of those interests you and you will make a a decision to get uh, a pair of tickets, yours for $30 a month, your contribution of $30 a month to WBUR. Here's the number again, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. When you think about what you learn from WBUR, as Carrie said, it's really educational media, but 
it's entertaining and edifying and and uh, adds clarity to what you know. And it is something that you can count on for the truth, because what we bring you is responsible journalism, fact-based journalism. And that's something you can't get everywhere. So it's the entire package. And we hope that you think it's worth your support, because you make up in aggregate more than a half of our operating budget. So right now, please do your part. And you decide what that part is. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And WBUR, it's it's a news organization, but it's also a source of comfort and connection for a lot of people. I mean, I'm thinking back to one of the last segments in Radio Boston that we heard about the photographer taking those um, taking and editing those portraits. Those beautiful are, dot, I think it's the project. Beautiful it's dot, great. yes. And so, you know, please consider supporting conversations like that that really show us about our humanity and the beautiful moments in life. It's it's a small ask, but it's an important gift. Your gift can be huge. Give monthly at WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Again, that's WBUR.org, and thanks. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Finger-pointing and denials. That's what's emerged as it becomes clear to European leaders that leaks in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 underwater pipelines that run from Russia to Germany were an act of sabotage. The leaks were caused by what scientists believe were explosions under the water that registered on the Richter scale. Natural gas has been leaking into the Baltic Sea for nearly two days. And NPR's Rob Schmitz has been following this story. He joins us now from Munich. Hi, Rob. Hey, Juana. Hey, so, Rob, investigators are now starting to look into this incident. What are the theories going around about what happened to these pipelines? Yeah, there are no shortage of theories or blame to go around. And in the past 24 hours, we've heard a lot of ideas. But what's clear to authorities on all sides of this is what happened to the Nord Stream pipelines off the coast of Denmark's Bornholm Island in the wee hours of Monday night into Tuesday morning was likely an intentional act. And it likely involved explosives powerful enough to rip apart the concrete-coated steel that makes up these pipelines. Russian state-run media has hinted the U.S. is behind this. A senior U.S. official said today that idea is, quote, preposterous. Some European leaders, including the Polish prime minister, are pointing the finger instead at Moscow. Kremlin spokesman called these accusations predictable, stupid, and absurd that Russia would attack its own pipelines. The Kremlin wants Gazprom, who helps run both these pipelines, to be allowed to join the investigation into what happened. And Russia says it wants to convene a meeting of the U.N. Security Council because of this. And Rob, if this was likely an intentional act, as you've said, could it be considered an attack on Europe since it was off the coast of Denmark, which is a EU country and a member of NATO? Yeah, that's where this gets interesting. These underwater explosions took place just outside the territorial waters of Denmark. So it's the kind of detail 
that one might expect from a state actor who is being careful to ensure this was not carried out inside the territory of a NATO member. Also, the owners of the pipelines, companies based in Russia and Switzerland, are not headquartered in NATO countries. So both the location of the explosions and the property damaged would not, under NATO rules, legally justify any kind of NATO or Western military response. Let's turn now to the natural gas that's leaking from these underwater pipes. Video taken by the Danish military shows a half-mile-wide circle of foamy, bubbling water as the gas reaches the surface. And it does not sound like something that is good for the environment, right? Yeah, you are correct on that. The silver lining here is that no gas was flowing in either of the pipelines. Nord Stream 2 was never started, and Russia had cut gas in Nord Stream 1 in August. But there was still natural gas inside hundreds of miles of pipes to maintain pressure inside of them. That's what's leaking, and it could take days to fully leak out. Now, natural gas is mostly methane. I spoke to Gregor Rader, professor of marine chemistry at the Leibniz Institute for Baltic Sea Research, about methane's impact on the environment. The main issue is actually the greenhouse gas release of methane. So this methane goes into the atmosphere, stays there for, on average, 10 years. And per molecule has 25 the greenhouse gas potential of CO2. In other words, Juana, methane is 25 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. And Rader says this single incident has released roughly the equivalent of 10% of Germany's annual methane emissions. Not a great day for those who care about reversing the effects of climate change. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Munich. Rob, thank you. Thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Peabody Essex Museum, with after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at PEM.org slash Halloween. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. That's wind and heavy rain pounding Fort Myers as Hurricane Ian made landfall this afternoon in southwestern Florida as a sprawling Category 4 with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. That storm is heading inland now, where forecasters say it's expected to weaken slightly, but residents in central Florida could still experience hurricane-force winds. Here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We have 200,000 power outages reported throughout the state of Florida, but outside of southwest Florida, crews are working to quickly restore power. Of course, 200,000 is a drop in the bucket for what's going to happen over the next 24 to 48 hours. There's going to be widespread power outages, uh, particularly in southwest Florida. Before the storm, about two and a half million people were ordered to evacuate, and authorities say most did, but some decided to stay. As part of a new national strategy to end hunger and reduce diet-related disease, President Biden announced a goal today to make public school meals free for all children. 
NPR's Allison Aubrey reports another strategy is to develop new food labels to empower people to make healthier choices. During the pandemic, millions of school children were offered free school meals, a strategy that can help reduce absenteeism and make kids more ready to learn. Now President Biden says the goal is to work with Congress to make meals free for all children and help schools. Cook more meals from scratch, purchase more food from local farmers and ranchers. And this will mean kids will have healthier meals. Another goal is to develop front-of-package labeling for food packages and a new healthy label with a goal of making a healthy choice an easier choice. Allison Aubrey, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern says today's White House conference on hunger will help establish a clear plan to fight food insecurity. McGovern is a longtime advocate for ending hunger. He calls today's meeting a turning point and noted the White House has called only one such conference like this before back in 1969. WIC came out of that conference. The food stamp program came out of that conference. Labeling came out of that conference. We want this conference to be every bit as transformational and historic. The Biden administration released its plan to fight hunger yesterday. It focuses on expanding low-income Americans' access to government food programs, including SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition uh, Nutrition Assistance Program. Massachusetts has received a new waiver from the federal government that will allow the state to run its own Medicaid program for the next five years. The deal comes just days before the existing waiver was set to expire. Governor Charlie Baker says the agreement will let Massachusetts tailor its mass health program for low-income individuals to the specific needs of residents. He says it'll boost funding for mental health care and improve access to care. About two million people get coverage through Mass Health, and the future of energy in the state is becoming central to governor the governor's race in Massachusetts. Today, Republican candidate Jeff Deal said he would seek to increase natural gas pipeline capacity to the state. He says the goal is to help residents find relief from rising energy costs. Renewable energy, while we want to have it, can't possibly provide all the power for commercial residential buildings and run every vehicle in the state. Deal says he would roll back or freeze some of the state's clean energy policies. His Democratic opponent, Maura Healy, says investments in clean energy are important to meeting climate goals. She says her plan to provide financial relief to residents centers around a child tax credit proposal. It's 434. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Should be a breezy night tonight, partly cloudy skies about the mid-50s at the lowest. Then for tomorrow, sunshine again, temperatures in the mid-60s, 70 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at nervivehealth.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The White House held a day-long summit today aimed at tackling hunger and diet-related disease. The event comes at a time when about one in ten households in the U.S. is food insecure. And diet-related diseases such as type 2 diabetes and heart disease are a top cause of death and disability now. NPR's Allison Aubrey was at the conference and joins us now. Hey, Allison. Hey, good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so President Biden announced a goal to end hunger by 2030. But, I mean, with so much food insecurity in this country, what exactly is his plan to get there? Uh, Well, you know, at a time when inflation has brought much higher food prices, pandemic-era benefits have diminished. More people rely on cheap calories that may fill their bellies but don't really nourish. Mm -hmm. And that's really part of food insecurity, Elsa, I mean, not being able to afford nutritious food. So the administration announced some initiatives aimed at improving access. Uh, Speaking at the conference today, President Biden told the crowd his goal is to make healthy school meals free, completely free for all children. My plan, as was already referenced, would make at least 9 million more children eligible for free school meals, a major first step for free meals for every single student. We're also supporting schools so they can cook more meals from scratch, purchase more food from local farmers and ranchers. Which he says will help support local economies. Now, the administration will need Congress to fund more of these free school meals. But, you know, the case I hear from nutrition, public health experts, many doctors, is that this would not only help reduce hunger and reduce absenteeism in school, make kids more ready to learn. It could also help prevent food-related chronic disease down the line. Okay, so prevention is a goal here. But What about treating people who are already struggling with diet-related diseases? There is a lot of momentum to integrate food and nutrition into the delivery of health care. To that end, the administration is calling for pilot programs to cover things like medically tailored meals for people with diet-related diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, also expanding Medicaid and Medicare beneficiaries' access to nutrition counseling. I spoke to one of the panelists today, Sachin Jain. He's a physician. He's CEO of Scan Health Plan. That's a Medicare Advantage plan. I think we have to increasingly you know, start to see food as an intervention that can meaningfully you know, change people's health outcomes, particularly if they face chronic diseases like diabetes or you know, hypertension or heart disease. There's accumulating evidence also, for example, that diet and lifestyle interventions can help reverse or improve type 2 diabetes. Uh, today, Kaiser Permanente, a large healthcare organization based in California, announced a $50 million commitment to expand its food is medicine initiatives. These include medically tailored meals, as I just mentioned, produce prescription, so literally prescribing fruits and vegetables to patients as a way to make them better, all aimed at curbing diet-related disease. These all sound like good plans. I'm curious, was there any discussion today about what the companies that, that market and package our foods can do to help with all this? Part of the strategy is a proposal to develop front of packaging labels on foods we buy in the grocery store and a new updated healthy label or healthy symbol to kind of give people information they need to make healthy choices. The FDA says these labels can act as a quick signal to consumers. It's all part of a strategy to reduce diet-related disease. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Elsa.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon, snhu.edu. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. When you call that number, when you give now, you'll be joining thousands and thousands of people who have already done the same. So know that every single phone call, every single time someone donates, it goes into our bigger pot that allows all things considered. It allows podcasts such as Daryl's podcast of Consider This, Morning Edition, On Point, all the programs you hear on WBUR, all the great reports that you hear from reporters like our senior education reporter, um, uh, Carrie, Carrie Young, sorry, who's here right now. I had to look it's to my It's been right a long day, Lisa. It's been it's a okay. long day already. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of thing that we know you appreciate it. We are so um, proud to have such strong reporters on our staff. And that's where your money is going. It's completely transparent. Here's the number to call, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. So Lisa and I are here this afternoon asking you to give money to WBUR. So it's only fair that we tell you what we're going to do with it. And the the answer actually is pretty simple. We turn your money into more of the programs and news stories you listen to on WBUR and that you read on our website. So more deep dives into some of the new research about uh, diet-related diseases, more research, more just general health news that you get here locally, too, on WBUR. So please consider uh, giving monthly to sustain this programming. You can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we do have some gifts to show our thanks for those gifts. For You can get a pair of tickets to the show of your choice in the Huntington Theatre Company's 2022-2023 season. Uh, And that will be our thanks for your contribution of $30 a month. Now, uh, we recently talked to Temple Gill, the Director of Public Affairs and Strategic Partnerships at the Huntington, and she told us a little bit more about the significance of the play that will be on stage for the reopening of the Huntington Theater on Huntington Avenue following some extensive renovations. We opened the new musical Sing Street and audiences at the Calderwood Pavilion are loving it. It is set in 1982 Dublin, and it's about a teenage boy who is interested in a girl, and he's trying to impress her. And so he says, oh, do you want to be in my band's music video? And she says, yeah, I would do that. And he walks away and he says to his friend, we're going to need to start a band. And the music is just terrific. It's all sounds of the early 80s there's also a lot of references to 80s pop music like duran duran and the clash and depeche mode and it's just really fun audiences are loving it people are on their feet every night and it's a good time that sounds like a great and very relatable story. <laughs> um, so if you want to see that show or any of the the shows in the company's 2022-2023 season, that's $30 per month. Again, you can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we like to present these uh, incentives for you just in case uh, you want to hear about something else. And it could even be one of our one of our pieces of swag here, an umbrella or a T-shirt or a sweatshirt or whatever. But really, we heard 
hoping that you will give because you know that you have a common interest with us and we have a common goal that is independent journalism, a thoughtful assigning process, a rigorous editing process. You know that this is trustworthy, what you hear on the air, and you probably can't say that for every news source that you have in your life. So because you have subscribed to us in terms of listening, in terms of reading uh, what we have at WBUR.org, maybe attending a City Space event, we hope you realize that we rely on you and your contribution for the majority of our operating budget. And we'll call right now to support us. one 800 9287 You know, Lisa brings up a great point, too, about the fact that WBUR is a source of independent journalism. You count, rather, and I count, too, actually, because I'm a listener, on WBUR to help you stay informed heading into the midterm elections. So important. We're bringing you nuance and all of the context on the issues that are affecting and could be affected by the election. We need your financial support to sustain all of that reporting. You can make a modest monthly contribution at WBUR.org or even an individual contribution, whatever fits your budget. You can also call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much. We're so indebted to you for your contribution, regardless of what it is. And you name the amount. We're not sending you a bill. There's no paywall here. You can listen for free, but we hope you won't. We hope you realize how much we rely on your support. one 800 or WBUR.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And the Umbrella Stage Company with Kate Hamill's Dracula, a feminist revenge fantasy, with a wry modern take on Stoker's classic. Starts Friday, theumbrellaarts.org. Like all countries, Japan's tourism industry was badly affected by the coronavirus pandemic. But relief is in sight. The government is expected to lift the nation's tight border restrictions soon. The country's ancient former capital, Kyoto, is anticipating return of tourists on whom its economy relies. But as Anthony Kuhn reports, that may not be enough to save the city from its financial difficulties. Visitors strike a huge bowl-shaped bell, and the sound reverberates through the Kiyomizu Temple. It's a sprawling complex of wooden halls established more than 1,200 years ago. Tourists are trickling back. So far, most of them are Japanese. Kyoto is Japan's eternal city, famous for its temples, shrines, and royal palaces. Its riverbanks are dotted with willow trees and bridges, its human-scaled lanes filled with traditional wooden machia townhouses. On a shop-lined street approaching the Kiyomizu Temple, business is picking up. Souvenir shop manager Sano Ko says it's been a tough two years. Tourists and customers vanished. His store had to shut down several times. The Kyoto government has been doing a lousy job for a long time. They should go bankrupt and start from scratch. Ko is not joking about bankruptcy. Kyoto City Finance Bureau official Susumu Ogasawara admits that the city was in danger of going broke. Kyoto was actually facing government intervention within 10 years if we had not come up with a reform plan. Some economic woes are specific to Kyoto. Its low-rise homes and tax-exempt temples produce little revenue. Others are shared by many Japanese cities. Their populations and infrastructure are aging. 
And with a national debt two and a half times the size of the economy, Japan's central government has limited ability to help them. Kyoto's proposed solution, Ogasawara says, includes cutting city staff, raising public transportation prices, and capping government spending. Ogasawara says tourists account for 55% of Kyoto's consumer spending, and the plan calls for attracting more of them. Rather than decreasing the number of tourists, we want to spread them out over the hours of the day and the seasons of the year. He admits, though, that before the pandemic, some residents felt that their city had been overrun. Kyoto faces a dilemma, how to rescue its finances without wrecking its appeal, and how to balance government spending on urban infrastructure versus welfare benefits. The debate in Kyoto over these priorities is heated. First of all, the city government saying Kyoto faces bankruptcy, that's a total lie. Hideaki Higuchi is a city assemblyman with the opposition Japanese Communist Party. He argues the city government is exaggerating its deficits in order to prepare taxpayers to pay more for spending on big-ticket items. These include building new bullet trains and expanding an unprofitable subway line. The current budget shows they're cutting welfare benefits as much as possible, including support for daycare and seniors' transport passes, in order to raise the budget for big public spending. Tokyo firms will do the construction for the big projects and reap the economic rewards, he says, not Kyoto. The cuts in services, coupled with unaffordable home prices, meanwhile, have triggered an exodus of Kyoto residents. Out of a population of nearly 1.5 million, nearly 12,000 residents left Kyoto last year, according to government figures more than any other city in Japan. Among them is souvenir store manager Sano Ko. He left three years ago, but still works in the city. Kyoto's welfare system is just terrible. I just had a child, but daycare is inadequate and too expensive, so I just fled. Ko hopes the central government will give Kyoto more support, but in the long term, he sees his former home as becoming increasingly inhospitable. That's why we call it a tourist city. It's not a place for people to live. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Kyoto. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The city of Uman is a lot like any other small city in Ukraine. It's sleepy, mostly agricultural, with a bit of industry. But once a year, the city transforms into a lively, even raucous pilgrimage site for Orthodox Jews on the Jewish New Year. NPR's Yulian Haida visited to check it out. We're driving through downtown. Not too many cars parked in the street. Still haven't found the center of activity. We approach a nondescript checkpoint, like thousands that have been set up since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The heavily armed police let us through. We step through the corner and into another world. All of a sudden, everything's written in Hebrew. You hear all sorts of different languages. All of a sudden, people start looking all sorts of different ways. A sea of Hasidic Jews descended from all over the world are here. Europe, North Africa, Ethiopia. 
All of their heads are covered, some with simple knit yarmulkes and others in traditional fur hats. One guy wears a Lakers jersey, but most wear flowing white caftans. Almost all are men. Yaakov Breslauer is on his 35th trip to Uman from Jerusalem. We come in to celebrate Jewish New Year. We also come to support the situation in Ukraine, the war. For a thousand years, Jews have lived in Ukraine. And since 1811, followers of a Hasidic mystic named Rabbi Nachman of Breslov have come here to Uman to celebrate life at his gravesite, especially during Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year that occurred this week. Shana tova, my brother. Alexander Khmara, a Jewish-Ukrainian soldier and this year's organizer, tells me that 23,000 people drove to Uman from neighboring countries. Still, that's about half the usual number. It's a really big risk. And as we talk, a reminder of that risk comes up. The call of a shofar, a ritual ram's horn, is interrupted. What? Is that a shofar or an air raid siren? It is an air raid siren, but not for anything nearby. People like Breslauer are unfazed. We know what war is. In Israel, we have wars on and off all the time. God sent the Ukraine soldiers to protect the Jewish people. We just need to pray for God. That's Shalom Ekstein, who drove from London to Uman with his friends. 29 hours. The governments of Ukraine, Israel, and the United States all warned pilgrims not to travel to Uman because of the war. Ignoring warnings is kind of a tradition here, though. Back when Ukraine was in the Soviet Union, foreigners weren't allowed to visit Uman at all. Still, people snuck over the border to visit Nachman's tomb. Their prayers are priceless, says Nazar Bondarenko, a local Christian who has seen this pilgrimage expand over the last four decades. While there's little doubt the prayers are earnest, it's also undeniably a party. What are you drinking? What do we got? We got some, uh, we got some double black label, we got some local vodka, a whole bunch of beer, and uh, that's it. That's Shmuel Amar, who came from Jerusalem. His buddies are drinking and smoking at the side of a public lake. Some of them jump into the water naked for fun, while for others, it's a ritual bath. While most are well-behaved, drunkenness and fighting have been issues in the past, and some of the cops and residents say they'd rather be involved in the war effort than policing a pilgrimage. But Nazar Bodnarenko, the Uman local, thinks that some of his neighbors should lighten up. We're all sinners, he says. These pilgrims teach us how to be joyful and tolerant. Yudian Haida, NPR News, Uman, Ukraine. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free, thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. 
by calling this number now, 1-800-909-9287, or going online at WBUR.org. WBUR is free, but not really free. I mean, you can listen without paying anything. We hope you will contribute, though, because our costs are real. News, in fact, is the most expensive kind of programming there is, and because we bring you news and information 24-7, that means uh, we need to come to you because you are in aggregate, uh, you represent the majority of our operations budget is not the government. We get a single digit percent from the government. It's not our local businesses as much as we totally appreciate their support. It's not foundations. It is you. So please make your contribution now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with our senior education reporter, Carrie Young. Good afternoon, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, with even with all of this intense focus on national and international news that we've been hearing on on NPR right now, local news has a lot of relevance and importance, more so than it ever has before. And WBUR is really invested in deeply meaningful local reporting. I know I was just in Worcester riding along on a school bus for an upcoming story on the education team, but we've also got a whole team looking at climate change. We've got a health team and more. So we can't do this without you. So please consider giving monthly to maintain serious local journalism. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you do, if you contribute $30 per month or more, you can get a pair of tickets uh, to the show of your choice and the Huntington Theatre Company's 2022-2023 season as our thanks. And we will put your money to work to bring you more of the journalism that you rely on. We have more from Temple Gill as well to let you listen to. Temple is the Director of Public Affairs and Strategic Partnerships at the Huntington. And she told us about one of the plays you can see as thanks for your support of WBUR. In January, we have The Art of Burning, a world premiere play by a local playwright, Kate Snodgrass, directed by Amelia Bensusen. And it is about a visual artist named Patricia, and she's going through a messy divorce. She's asked for sole custody of their teenage daughter, and things are a little strange when the daughter seems to have disappeared. So the play is about these adult relationships. It's about the end of a marriage, Um, but it's also funny and smart In The Art of Burning, Patricia, our main character, who is going through a messy divorce, goes to see a production of Medea, of course, that ancient classic play about vengeance taken on a man who is leaving a woman, and she is inspired by it. And the play is funny and smart and about these complex personal relationships. And again, you can see that play or the show of your choice in the Huntington Theatre Company's 2022-2023 season. And that is for $30 a month or more. You can go to WBUR.org for that gift or call 1-800-909-9287. And Carrie mentioned there a gift of $30 a month or more. If you can become a sustainer, that means making a monthly gift of, say, $10, $15, $30, $50, if you can swing that, then you are helping us in our effort to bring 
bring you constant, independent journalism. There is no other way for us. Uh, we couldn't do it because it's not in our charter. We don't want to do it. We want to report, continue to report uh, without fear or favor. So your contribution equals independence. Your contribution equals freedom. So please understand that no matter how much you can give, uh, and as we suggest, if you can give monthly, that would be fantastic. We're relying on you for more than half our operating budget. So here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And here at WBUR, we really try to bring you stories that reveal important truths and tell local stories that no one else is telling. I know I personally take a lot of effort to bring unique voices and, and give their stories time to breathe. It's it's one of the benefits of listening to and working for WBUR. So we need your financial support to sustain that kind of journalism. It doesn't have to be a lot, just 10 or $15 a month, whatever you can budget, but it has impact here at WBUR. You can give monthly at WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks a lot. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Hurricane Ian, with its ferocious 150-mile-per-hour winds, has made landfall in southwestern Florida, where pictures are already showing devastation from the powerful Category 4 storm. And that initial wind and water damage is likely only the beginning for residents there. Ian came ashore shortly after 3 p.m. Eastern Time in Cayo Costa, a barrier island south of Fort Myers. Patrick Fuller is the Charlotte County Emergency Management Director. The storm surge, you know, we're still at the very beginning of that. Uh, we will see that continue throughout the afternoon into the evening. Uh, it's going to begin to fill up canals over top land into potentially into homes. We have some reports of water intrusion into homes, and I continue, expect that to continue. The area where Ian came ashore is the same spot that Charlie, another Category 4 hurricane, made landfall in 2004. Florida officials ordered millions to evacuate in recent days and now say it's too late to leave for anyone who decided not to heed that order. Power is already out for more than a million Floridians. Authorities, meanwhile, they're searching for at least 20 people after a boat carrying migrants sank off the Florida coast. NPR's Joel Rose reports the Border Patrol said today the boat went down as Hurricane Ian lashed the region. The chief Border Patrol agent in Miami, Walter Slosser, says four Cuban migrants swam to shore on Stock Island near Key West after their boat sank. Slosser said on Twitter that the Coast Guard was still searching for almost two dozen people. 
The Coast Guard later tweeted that crews had rescued three people at sea, about two miles south of the Florida Keys. They were brought to a local hospital for symptoms of exhaustion and dehydration. The dangerous eye wall of Hurricane Ian passed west of the Keys before making landfall in southwest Florida. Immigration authorities have seen a surge in the number of apprehensions at sea, as thousands of migrants from Cuba, Haiti, and elsewhere have boarded flimsy boats in a desperate attempt to reach the U.S. Joel Rose, NPR News. The Senate is taking up a short-term spending bill that would keep the government funded through mid-December. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the window is closing for lawmakers to reach an agreement to avoid a partial government shutdown by the weekend. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is urging lawmakers to fast-track the bill, adding that it contains many provisions that both parties support. As my colleagues know, government funding runs out Friday at midnight. We must work fast to finish the process here on the floor, send a CR to the House, and then send it to the president's desk before the clock runs out. The bill includes more than $12 billion in additional security aid for Ukraine and billions more to address wildfire damage in New Mexico and clean water supplies in Jackson, Mississippi. President Biden's request for more money to fight the pandemic and the monkeypox outbreak did not make the cut. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A level of calm returned to Wall Street today. The Dow was up 548 points. The Nasdaq rose 222 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Biogen stocks surged today after the Cambridge drug maker announced that an experimental Alzheimer's therapy was successful in a clinical trial in slowing the disease. Shares in the company finished trading about 40 percent higher than yesterday's close. The company's new treatment is for mild cognitive impairment and mild Alzheimer's. An incarcerated man at the Massachusetts Corrections Institution in Shirley is facing numerous charges for an attack on a prison employee. Rory Booth was indicted today. He'll be arraigned next month. He's accused of seriously beating corrections officer Matthew Tidman with a metal pole last month. Tidman has been hospitalized in intensive care ever since. A wayward seal that had taken up residence in a Beverly Pond has been returned to the ocean following a medical checkup. Schubert the seal decided to hang out in Shoe Pond in Beverly for several days last week. He was taken into custody last Friday when he scurried near the Beverly Police Department and was transported to the Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut for a checkup. Early today, he was given a clean bill of health and released near Block Island, Rhode Island. In the forecast, could see some more clouds move in for a bit tonight. Not staying too long, though. Sky should clear by tomorrow morning. Lows about 53 tonight. Tomorrow should reach the mid-60s for a high. More sunshine. Friday, ditto. Sunny skies, highs in the mid-60s. 70 degrees now in Boston at 5.05. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. This is WBUR. We are, in all things considered right now, in hearing the news, which you will hear in just a couple of minutes. But first, we'd like you to think about the news that you hear and its role in your daily life. WBUR is your daily companion, your connection to the world around you. What is that worth to you? Tell us right now, because our fundraiser is rounding toward the end right now, and we hope that we won't end it without you. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Carrie Young. 
And Lisa, I don't know about you, but WBOR is so important to keeping me sane during my commute on the way in in the morning. It, I get news information. I get lighthearted stories, updates on that wayward seal, for example. <laughs> um, so uh, please consider supporting that type of programming. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you give now, uh, some of the members of our Murrow Society are providing funding for this two-for-one match on monthly contributions. It's also sort of a a tripling of your contributions. So if you're not good at math, like I am not, (laughs) um, that that will turn your $10 into $30, $25, (laughs) though, into $75. You get you. You get it. So right now is a great time to give. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is a really great opportunity, especially if you've never given to WBUR before. Maybe you've never listened to a fund drive before. Um, please give whether you have or haven't. $10 a month turns into $30 a month. Your gift of $25 a month turns into 75 and so on. This is a fantastic opportunity to really make a difference uh, and uh, and not tax your budget, we hope, too much. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This triple match is underway right now. Please call. Thanks. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Hurricane Ian made landfall this afternoon near Cayo Costa on the southwest coast of Florida. And it's one of only a handful of storms to make landfall with sustained winds over 150 miles per hour. And now it is expected to make its way slowly north. More than one million homes and businesses are without power. Earlier today, Kevin Guthrie, the Florida Division of Emergency Management Director, warned residents. If everything stops, the storm is not over. If you can hear us, if you can see us on your TV, you're most likely to have bright, sunshiny area here very soon. You're in the eye of the storm. Stay inside. Stay indoors. Do not go outside. You do not know when that eye wall will collapse. So please stay safe. Joining us now is Sandra Viktorova, a reporter with WGCU. She's at the Emergency Operations Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Hi there. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, Well, I can tell you that there's a lot of concern here at the Emergency Operations Center. Uh, The folks here don't know how many folks heeded the warning to evacuate. There were 120,000 residents here in Charlotte County alone who were told to leave their homes. That's two-thirds of the population. The concern was about a possible 12- to 16-foot storm surge. We know that about 60,000 of those residents who were being told to leave were living in an area called the Red Zone. And that zone, uh, the elevation in in those parts are perhaps six to seven feet high at at best. So, of course, that storm surge was, was extremely worrisome to to folks here. As I understand it, Sandra, you are just north of where Ian made landfall. Can you describe for us what it was like when it hit? Well, I I must confess, I have been safe and sound, hunkered down with emergency operations officials, but I can tell you the the eye blew over. And, you know, just as it was approaching, you 
even here, I mean, this is practically a bomb shelter and you could feel the vibration, especially up against the door. Mm. And, and these, you know, this building is, of course, got to be one of the safest in the state of Florida. Um, so it was very intense. Of course, I um, unfortunately have family and friends who have actually are in the eye of the storm or have been throughout the day. And, um, you know, as most people describe it, sort of that freight train feeling hoping that, you know, the house is just going to stay together. Um, so it's been in worrisome for, for not only myself, but of course, a lot of the folks here who, you know, they're doing their best to, to, to take care of the residents here across Charlotte County. And of course, wondering about their own homes, their own families and hoping that they're safe. Um, I had the opportunity um, to actually go into the call center here. It's an information call center uh, that the county has. This is separate from 911, and essentially they've received 2,000 phone calls in just the last okay. few days from folks in Charlotte County. And at first, those calls, you know, over the last few days have been, okay, you know, where's my local shelter? Can I bring my pets? Those calls have changed, you know, over the last 24 hours. You know, the calls um, last night, you know, were coming from folks saying, do I still have time to leave? And then around midnight, definitely the tone and into today, it, very different folks then asking for help. And, and, and you can imagine the stress of these operators. Some of them are, sure. you know, folks who work in different departments across the county. Some of them are volunteers and they know there's nothing that they can do. You know, 911 operators are still taking that information down, but they are not sending first responders out because it's simply too dangerous. So these, you know, volunteers on this information line are taking these calls um, but honestly, not not being able to just you know provide help, but simply trying okay. to soothe their nerves and reassure them. Right. That is Sandra Victorova, a reporter with WGCU. She's at the Emergency Operations Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Thank you, and we hope you stay safe. Thank you. Here's a good news story about a disease that was spreading fast through the summer. Not COVID-19, monkeypox. A few months ago, the U.S. was reporting more than 400 cases a day on average. Infections have been dropping pretty steadily over the last few weeks and are now less than half where they were at the peak. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis is deputy coordinator for the White House National Monkeypox Response. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, Uri. Thank you so much for having me. Let's take stock of where things stand at this moment. Over the last four months, the U.S. has reported more monkeypox cases than any other country, 25,000 according to the CDC. And the numbers have been dropping steadily, but we are still seeing an average of about 200 cases a day. So on a scale of worried to optimistic to running a victory lap, where are you right now? I am cautiously optimistic, nowhere near a victory lap. Uh, you know, infections tend to be really smart as do outbreaks, so we're going to watch really carefully, but let's give it a six out of 10 right a now. A six out of 10? Okay, that's good. It seems like there are at least three main factors here. There is the nature of the disease, there are individual behaviors, and there's the policy response. So let's take them one at a time. First, the nature of the disease. When you compare the arc of this to COVID-19, how much of the difference is because of the way each disease is transmitted. I think the first thing to say is that this is definitely not COVID-19. The vast majority of transmission is occurring through close intimate contact, often related to uh, sexual activity. Also, it started in the population of gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men, and the majority of cases continue to be um, in that group. Its mechanism of transmission and also where it lives in, the, in a population is a lot different. 
And how much of the decrease in cases do you attribute to behavior changes? A vaccine became available early in the summer. New data suggests it's been working pretty well. There were long lines to get access to it. Do you think high-risk populations, men who have sex with men, made choices in the last few months that changed the course of this disease? I don't only think that they did, we have data to back it up. So looking at an MMWR uh, that was released from the CDC in September. Sorry, what's an MMWR? Sorry, it's a uh, morbidity and mortality weekly report, MMWR. It's one of the ways that CDC disseminates some of their data and information. So in this report, a survey was done of about 800 men who have sex with men. And what they found was that there was a 50% reduction for several behaviors that could be associated with monkeypox. And it was in response to the monkeypox outbreak. So fewer uh, one-time partners, less use of uh, social networking sites or sex uh, venues. Behavior, definitely a part of this. Biology, also a part of it. As cases have dropped, they have not been dropping equally. A a large proportion of new cases these days are detected in Black and Latino men. Um, How do you plan to close this disparity? So I think it's really our strategy um, has equity that uh, as its cornerstone throughout it. I'll note that when you look at our treatment demographics, the disparity is significantly less. So individuals who have access TPOX, the vast majority are Black and Latino. So really, we're focusing our equity efforts on vaccine and uh, identifying strategies Um, to actually improve vaccine uptake among Black and Latino individuals. Today, we also announced something that's really important, which is also expanding uh, vaccine availability by increasing um, the folks who could qualify and by also getting rid of some of the risk assessments that have been hampering some people who aren't willing to say, hey, I have multiple sex partners and I'm a a man who has sex with men. So currently, in order to get the vaccine, people have to say, more or less, I have a lot of sex partners, which might not be something that everybody is comfortable saying, particularly when it comes to same-sex partners. Totally. And so this is, I think, an example of what sounds like a biological intervention, which is really a stigma intervention. Some lawmakers have said that the Biden administration's response was flat-footed. This was Republican Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina at a Senate hearing earlier this month. For the next one, we've got to respond a hell of a lot faster than we did for COVID, and we've got to do much better than we did on monkeypox. What do you say to that? I'll tell you that this has been a story of pivots. So, you know, when we first started and we looked at the monkeypox playbook, what you do is what they call ring vaccination. So you find someone with monkeypox, find out who their contacts were, and then give them vaccine. Soon thereafter, it was clear that that's not going to work in this population and wasn't going to work with the way that this outbreak of monkeypox was transmitting, which is unprecedented. And so there was a pivot. You know, really, it's about responding to the epidemiology and changing the course of the response. I always say there's no such thing as an emergency response that's fast enough, but the lessons learned from COVID here actually mattered, and we were able to move things really quickly and were able to pivot fairly nimbly given the changes that we saw with the outbreak as we move forward. You know, so often with COVID, we saw cases beginning to drop and then people would take off their masks and go party and cases would climb back up again. Do you worry that something similar might happen now as people get a sense of false complacency around monkeypox? Yeah, so I'm absolutely worried about that, which is one of the reasons that I gave us a six out of 10 um, in terms of where we are, because I think we, as we are working to increase the immune force field that we're creating with vaccination. Um, I think the messaging is still really important to make sure that people know we're not out of the woods and that if we want to see this outbreak end, we really need to sort of use all the tools in the toolkit, behavior, testing, 
vaccines, all of those, uh, until we get to a point where we have really good coverage of vaccine, two shots, not one, to make sure that people are uh, protected as best as possible. Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis is the White House National Monkeypox Response Deputy Coordinator. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ari. This is 90.9 WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks have rebounded from their low of the year. The Dow snapped its six-day losing streak. It gained 1.88 percent, or 549 points, to close at 29,684. S&P picked up nearly 2 percent to finish at 37.19. The Nasdaq rose a little more than 2 percent to close at 11,052. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. With after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at pem.org slash Halloween. Been a pretty beautiful day. Should have some clouds collecting early tonight, then clearing out for the bulk of the night. Lows about 53. Tomorrow, another mainly sunny day, although it should only make it to the mid-60s, a little bit breezy tomorrow. Then for Friday, pretty much the same story. Sunny skies, about 63 tops. As of now, it's looking like we should have clouds move in for the weekend. 70 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera's La Boheme. Puccini's classic moves in reverse from tragedy to hope at Emerson Colonial Theater through October 2nd. BLO.org. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Thank you so much if you've given already in the fund drive. If you haven't, now is a really great time to give because some generous members of the Murray Society have put an offer on the table. I'm Lisa Mullins. Carrie Young is here to tell you what that offer is. Right. That offer is a tripling of your contribution, or if you want to think about it this way, it's a two-for-one match. So you can turn $10 into 30 You can turn $25 a month into 75 This offer is only available until the $25,000 in matching money runs out. So this is a really great time to give right now. And to do that, you can go to WBUR.org or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. We don't have these offers very often, and uh, we are certainly happy to present one right now during All Things Considered in particular. We love it when people support us at all at WBUR. We really love it when people support us during All Things Considered. So you can get your gift to us matched. Your monthly gift can be matched. So if you can swing $50 a month, it becomes $150 a month for us. $100 a month becomes $305 a month becomes 15 You can do the math. It all adds up to a strong budget for us. And when we have a strong budget, we have a very strong on-air product. We have a great uh, series at uh, City Space. We have uh, even more power behind our website, WBUR.org. That's where your money goes. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And here at WBUR, we believe that public media is really one of the last great hopes for journalism and for our democracy. Thanks to the trust and generosity of our members, WBUR has one of the strongest local newsrooms in the country. I mean, WBUR to me feels like a powerhouse. Before I moved here, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. 
And I knew about WBUR there. It had a great reputation. And so please help us keep that going, keep that strength in local and national news going so that you can count on us. We need to know that we can count on you too. So you can make a modest investment in that or make a modest contribution at WBUR.org or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. And I think it's especially important to know that you're making a contribution to what you hear back on the air. It's a it's a transparent endeavor. And, uh, you know, as Carrie is saying, when she lived out on the West Coast, she knew about WBUR. It's, we've got a national reputation, a local product and a local audience like no other audience. We are so happy that you've supported us to the extent that you have and that we can grow as we have and add city space and add podcasts and add reporters and investigative team. This is the result of your funding in the past, so your individual contribution in the past. So please, right now, make a contribution, especially right now, because your gift will be tripled right now by some generous members of the Morrow Society. This offer is available uh, until $25,000 in matching money runs out. It's also available, I mean, we appreciate a monthly gift. Uh, $10 a month becomes 30 for instance. But if you want to make a one-time gift, if you can swing a thousand dollars, it becomes three thousand. That will be tripled. Five thousand dollars becomes fifteen thousand for us. Whatever is right for your budget is right for us. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven WBUR dot org. Going back to all things considered, now if you have never made a pledge to WBUR before, what a great time to have your gift have even more meaning than it normally would. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven WBUR org. If you can become a monthly supporter, we would love that. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Jackson, Mississippi is trying to recover from a water crisis that left residents without clean drinking water for nearly two months and no water pressure at all for a week. Officials have since lifted a boil water notice, but many people in the capital city remain afraid to drink from their own faucets. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. You pull a little bit closer. Residents in South Jackson keep coming to this water distribution site at the New Jerusalem Church. How you doing, bud? Cars pull in and workers load two cases of free bottled water into trunks and back seats. We on in the seat right here? Yeah, they will be fine. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, God bless. Thank you. Judge Blocker says even though his faucets are running again, he's not ready to drink, cook, or clean with what comes through them just yet. I do have uh, pretty good pressure coming in, but that's only to, to flush with. I'm not just really trusting it now to do anything else with it. It's just to flush with. 
The city of Jackson didn't have any running water, even for flushing toilets earlier this month. Its water treatment system failed when flooding exacerbated long-standing problems. By then, nearly 180,000 water customers had already been under a boil advisory for weeks. The state intervened to make emergency repairs and lifted that order about two weeks ago. Since, there have been new problems, a chlorine leak at a treatment plant, and water line breaks. Concerns also remain about potential lead contamination. The health department still urges pregnant women and young children to use bottled or filtered water. This is not only just a water crisis, but this is now transitioning into a public health crisis. That's Danielle Holmes, a Jackson-based organizer with the Poor People's Campaign, one of the grassroots groups that make up the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition, which continues to provide free bottled water to residents daily. She says chronic neglect of the capital city's infrastructure led to this crisis. Over the years, once you starve something, it eventually dies. And so this is what we're seeing with the water treatment facility. Um, it has been starved like, a, I mean, our infrastructure altogether is crumbling. Holmes and other activists are calling on the federal government to intervene. EPA Administrator Michael Regan met with Jackson's mayor this week, acknowledging that people here have been without access to safe and reliable water for decades, a situation he calls a long-standing injustice. These conditions, I believe we all can agree, are unacceptable in these United States of America. In a letter, the U.S. Justice Department said state and local authorities have violated the Safe Drinking Water Act. It cites 300 boil water notices in the last two years and says there's substantial endangerment to human health. The federal agencies in Jackson are in talks to avoid litigation and come up with a court-approved plan to ensure sustainable water service. Republican Governor Tate Reeves says outside help is needed. I don't think it's very likely that the city is going to operate the water system in the city of Jackson anytime soon, if ever. There are also civil lawsuits brought by water customers and a claim from the NAACP against the state of Mississippi alleging racial discrimination. Everyone agrees that a long-term fix is needed, but there's no consensus on what that should look like. Ideas include a regional entity or even privatization. And politics are at play. Local activists like Danielle Holmes say they don't trust the Republican-led state government to serve the best interests of Democratic-led and majority Black Jackson. No, we don't trust it. And um, definitely don't trust it from a state leader, uh, our governor, who has shown and spewed out of his mouth his disdain for Jacksonians' right. She's referring to this comment Reeves made while traveling during the water crisis. I've got to tell you, it is a great day to be in Hattiesburg. It's also, as always, a great day to not be in Jackson. Um. Many perceived the comment as tone deaf at best when people in Jackson were trying to manage the basic functions of life with water from a bottle. Back at New Jerusalem Church, our Lillian West is fed up with it. It's been horrible to have to actually have water kept in your bathroom to brush your teeth with, to have to actually warm water up, to even bathe with each and every day, even to wash your face. So that's been a lot of work. 
Wes says the most frustrating part is that after all the hardship, she's still expected to pay for a failed water system. I just got my bill yesterday and it's $146. That's too much for one month of not being able to do anything but flush. If she's paying for the system, Wes says, she'd like to have higher confidence that the water coming from her faucet is safe. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Jackson, Mississippi. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhill Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hurricane Ian made landfall in South Florida this afternoon with winds near 150 miles per hour. As Danielle Pryor of member station WMFE tells us, Ian is currently a major Category 4 storm. Even before coming ashore near Cayo Costa, Ian had lashed southwest Florida all day long with hurricane-force winds and waters flooding in from the Gulf of Mexico. Governor Ron DeSantis said Wednesday afternoon that winds and storm surge had already damaged people's homes and businesses. We are going to stand with the people who are most affected, uh, and we understand this is not just a 48-hour ordeal. This is going to be something that is going to be there for days and weeks and months, and unfortunately, in some circumstances, even years. Ian's expected to move from the coast to the Orlando area on Thursday before it exits the peninsula near Daytona Beach. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. The Bank of England has taken emergency action to head off a crisis in the broader economy. Britain's central bank today announced it's buying up government debt to, quote, restore orderly market conditions, as Villa Marx tells us. That plan comes as the U.K.'s currency remains near historic lows compared to the U.S. dollar, and government borrowing there costs continue to soar. The Bank of England said it would carry out bond purchases at, quote, whatever scale is necessary to calm markets after recently proposed tax cuts. Concern among investors about the U.K.'s economy has continued, and the leader of the country's main opposition party, Sir Keir Starmer, said the Prime Minister Liz Truss's government should, quote, urgently review its plans. Meanwhile, the International Monetary Fund has also taken the unusual step today of urging members of the G7 advanced economies, including the U.K., to abandon its plan to cut taxes and increase borrowing to cover the cost, a move that could push inflation even higher. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Springfield-based gunmaker Smith & Wesson is being accused of illegally focusing its ads for firearms on young men at risk of violence. A lawsuit was filed in Illinois today by people wounded at an Independence Day parade in suburban Chicago this summer by a 22-year-old gunman. Plaintiff's lawyers say Smith & Wesson should have known the advertising campaign would appeal to a dangerous group of customers, including the parade gunman. WBR has reached out to the company for comment. U.S. Labor Secretary and former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh is expressing confidence about the future of the labor movement in America. He returned to the city today to speak at a statehouse news service forum. He said labor organizers who have visited the White House are focused on more than salaries and wages. But what surprised me the most when we were having these conversations wasn't the fact that, that they were talking about wages. They weren't. They were talking about working conditions and that the way they were treated on the job. They were talking about respect. 
A Gallup poll last month found Americans approve of labor unions more than any time since 1965. Starting next week, Massachusetts residents using the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, will see a 12 percent increase in benefits. It's a cost-of-living adjustment by the state based in part on the rising cost of utilities. For a family of four, the average benefit will go from $835 a month to $939. Eversource says it remains on standby but currently has no plans to send crews to Florida to help with power restoration efforts caused by Hurricane Ian. A spokesman for the Boston and Hartford-based company says it will provide crews as necessary and appropriate. And it's still not clear whether Patriots quarterback Mac Jones is going to be able to play against the Packers in Green Bay this Sunday. Pats head coach Bill Belichick says Jones is making progress after he injured his ankle last Sunday in Foxborough against Baltimore. Definitely getting better. Made a lot of progress here in the last, whatever, 48 hours. Uh, So keep plugging away and take that day by day, see how it goes. Belichick says backup quarterback Brian Hoyer will start Sunday if Jones is not able to play. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. Red Sox and Baltimore Orioles meet up for Game 3 of 4 at Fenway Park tonight. Rich Hill takes the mound for Boston. In the forecast, breezy, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Clearing skies by morning, about the mid-50s at the lowest. And for tomorrow, sunshine should be in the mid-60s. 68 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between. Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Hurricane Ian is slamming into the Florida Gulf Coast with winds topping 150 miles an hour. FEMA, the National Guard, utility crews, and relief organizations are preparing to go into the hardest hit areas just as soon as they can. NPR's David Shaper reports that a complex logistics operation is underway. Forecasters call Hurricane Ian a devastating storm that will likely cause catastrophic damage across parts of Florida. Nonetheless, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says the agency is ready. And I can confidently say that we have the right teams and we have the right resources in place and ready to meet the needs of those that we are charged to serve. Criswell says search and rescue teams are standing by, ready to respond from Miami. There's fuel, generators and personnel pre-staged inside and outside of the hardest hit areas with trucks and heavy equipment ready and waiting. We are continuing to move in equipment as the governor asks for more equipment. I believe today he asked for more high water vehicles and additional rescue capabilities, and we are moving that in. More than 600,000 homes and businesses are already without power. Scott Aronson heads up disaster preparedness for the industry group, the Edison Electric Institute. He says there are some 33,000 utility workers from two dozen states ready to respond with some of them waiting just outside of harm's way. They have uh, areas where they are already pre-positioning crews 
and they are pre-staging uh, all the equipment and material that they are going to need. And, and these are places that they know are not prone to flooding, are going to be in an area that is uh, less likely to be impacted. And Aronson says more crews are pre-positioned further away in Georgia, Alabama, and the Carolinas. Meanwhile, nonprofit relief organizations have worked with state and federal officials to fill up warehouses in the region with food, water, clothing, and other essentials. Again, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. We have 3.7 million meals and 3.5 million liters of water staged in Alabama. And there are multiple volunteer agencies that are staged and prepared to perform feeding operations as soon as it is safe to do so. The Red Cross has 500 responders already staffing Florida shelters with room and supplies for as many as 60,000 evacuees. Another 2,500 responders are standing by to go in by the weekend. But all that pre-positioning of these critical relief supplies and personnel takes time and money, says Kathy Fulton, executive director of the American Logistics Aid Network. 60 to 80 percent of humanitarian spending actually goes towards logistics, and, and that's very evident in disaster response. Fulton says a storm like Ian with the forecast of its track constantly moving makes such logistics planning even more difficult. Add to that a nationwide supply chain crunch that could impact disaster response. We think that the capacity will be there. What that means for timing of deliveries, you know, and what that means for availability of donated resources is really it's really up to the storm at this point. Uh, it depends on how large the damage uh, area is. And that will become more apparent over the next few days. David Shaper, NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt.com with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one -on -one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. WBUR built a multimedia reporting team to provide serious, deep, compelling coverage on one of the most important issues of our time, the environment. Changes to our climate pose serious threats to our communities, our health, and our planet. These threats aren't off in the distance. They are happening today, all around us. To maintain this team and this coverage, WBUR depends on you. Specifically, we are asking for your financial support. I'm Martha Biebinger. A contribution of $10 or $15 a month will have a big impact. Here's how you can help. By calling now, 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Kara Young, just briefly asking you for your contribution, because as Martha Biebinger said there, it makes an enormous impact, even what you might consider a modest gift. If it can be $10, $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, whatever is right for your budget, uh, then please call us now. Go online, WBUR.org, 1-800-909-9287, especially now because that gift becomes tripled thanks to some members of the Morris Society. That's right. Uh, another way to think about this, too, is it's two for one, kind of. So to break that down a little bit, it'll turn your $10 a month into $30, your $25 a month into $75. And this offer, you do need to, uh, you know, pay attention to the timing because it's not available for forever. It's only available until the $25,000 
in matching money runs out. So right now, this is a great time to give. And to give, you can go to WBUR.org or you can give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. It's important for me to be a WBUR member because it doesn't seem right that I would be getting all of this information, all of this news and find joy in some of the other programs if I wasn't paying for it and I wasn't supporting it. It's a nice opportunity to participate in the programming and the ideas that the station promotes. I think we all get to say something with our money, even if we give modest amounts. With that money, we make something happen. Your modest monthly gift will make a meaningful difference. Give monthly at WBUR.org. I just confirmed with Jay Clayton, our mastermind of fundraising, who's on the other side of the glass, that those are actual listeners. They are incredibly well-spoken. That doesn't surprise me in the least. But the idea of making something happen with your contribution is so on target because what happens is the news that you hear, the news you hear on All Things Considered, uh, stories about uh, global warming, stories about financial uh, considerations, stories about the environment, stories about fun things as well, music certainly, and the arts. And this is what you get by giving to WBUR, and we hope again you will give right now and make something happen. You can make more happen, in fact, with your investment right now because of this uh, generous triple match by the Murrah Society. Right. And just to remind you, that it turns your $10 a month into 30 and your $25 a month into $75. So it's a really great time to give, to extend the life of your gift or, or the amount that your gift can do or what your gift can do here at WBUR. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we only have uh, $25,000. Well, we shouldn't say only. We have $25,000 in matching money, but that will run out at some point. So please get your gift in right now to make it count. If you can swing $50 a month, it becomes $150 for us uh, because of this match. $100 becomes $300. If you'd like to make a gift, a one-time gift, of $1,000, and yes, some people can do that, it becomes 3000 for us. So this is a terrific time to take advantage of the offer and to make your contribution to WBR go that much further. It's tripled under this Morrow Society match, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're not asking you to take on the whole amount of uh, what we need for our budget. We're asking you to just do your part, especially because when you think about the role of WBUR in your daily life, it's your daily companion, your connection to the world. It's a trusted news source. How many sources of news and information around you can you say that about? The fact that you listen and you can trust what you hear What's that worth to you? 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Call right now. Your gift will be tripled. If you make a $10 a month gift, it becomes 30 for us, etc. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. It's 545. Hunger is a big problem in the U.S. Government figures show that in 2020, more than 38 million Americans faced food insecurity. President Biden is hosting the first White House conference on hunger in 50 years. And earlier today, he announced his goal for ending hunger in America. I really do know we can do this. End hunger in this country by the year 2030. 
Desiree Lamar Murphy already works to end hunger, at least on a smaller scale. She runs a food bank in the Philadelphia area. She's attending the conference today and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. So glad to be at the conference today. And so glad that you are on our show today. Um, Before we talk about the actual conference, I want to know more about your work in the Philadelphia area. I know that your food bank is called Murphy's Giving Market, and you started it from your own backyard during the pandemic. I'm just curious what first prompted you to do that. So many food banks and food pantries in the area were closing because many of them are run by senior citizens who were most vulnerable during um, the COVID pandemic. And many of them were inside of buildings and churches and community centers who had to shut down. Mm -hmm. And we and my family and friends came together and decided that we can't let that happen. People needed access to food at the most vulnerable time. So we bought all the food from my house in my backyard. We were initially going to just give it to pantries that were going to stay open. Uh But then people started driving by the house and saw all that we had. And these are people that were on their way to supermarkets. And we're like, supermarkets don't have it. Can we just buy it from you? And we were like, no, we can just give it out. So my family, my mom, my friends, we all came together and we started Murphy's Giving Market, which operated in my backyard for a year and a half, serving the community from 30 families to over 100 families. Oh, my God. Well, thank God for people like you. I understand that Murphy's Giving Market provides more than just food now, right? Like, what else do you help people with? We help um, to provide feminine hygiene products to women, clothing, uh, shoes. But we also realize that in order to really tackle this thing called food insecurity, we have to connect people to other resources. Mm-hmm. So we take a holistic approach to poverty. So we connect people to housing assistance, rental assistance, uh, help people apply for SNAP benefits. Um, immigration services so we connect to other resources because we want to help people become more self-sustainable themselves so they they no longer need a handout through food pantry. Yeah. I am wondering, are you seeing more people coming to you to ask for help compared to even just last year? Absolutely. And we're seeing last year when the the pandemic first started, it was non-working people because no one could work, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's people that are coming and calling during outside hours because they are working, but they still can't meet the gap. So we have last year, this time, we were serving about 110 families. But this year we're up to 250 families each week. And they call even when we're closed. They want diapers. They want baby formula because there was a baby formula shortage. And they're asking for other resources. And people are looking for more culturally relevant foods because we serve a very diverse population. So tell me, Desiree, what specifically do you hope to walk away with after this conference? President Biden said it best. We need to continue with the child tax credit. There are too many families that were able to benefit from the child tax credit um, the last two years. That child tax credit put money in people's families' pockets every month, and they were able to fill the gap to be able to pay their rent. We need to continue that increase of SNAP for families, make the SNAP eligibility guidelines um, so that more families can um, have access to SNAP, and not just families, but seniors and immigrants, like make food more available. Mm-hmm. I, as a former person, that depended on these benefits, Mm. recognize that when you are hungry, you buy food first before you buy, pay your rent. There's so much more money that goes into housing and not food, but food is the first thing you buy. So if we make food accessible, then people will have money to pay their bills, to pay their rent. And I think that's pivotal to change in the economics of America. 
That is Desiree Lamar Murphy. She is the founder and CEO of Murphy's Giving Market in the Philadelphia area. Thank you so much for your work, Desiree, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Ukraine, there have been reports that Russian military lines quickly collapsed during this month's counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region. But Ukrainian soldiers who were there say the Russians were well dug in and well equipped and put up significant resistance. NPR's Jason Bobian reports that their perspective on the counteroffensive in Kharkiv could offer insight into the efforts to push back Russian forces elsewhere in Ukraine. A Ukrainian soldier from a territorial defense unit is walking through the blown apart village of Borshova. The village is about 10 miles north of Kharkiv and 10 miles south of the Russian border. The only residents left here are a few stray dogs and some young cats who emerge from the piles of bricks and splintered timbers. This part of northeastern Ukraine was fiercely contested by both sides until Ukrainian troops finally pushed the last Russian-backed forces out of Borshova on September 11th. Our troops moved through the forest. Right here in this street there were battles and it was like the front line before this village Borshova. The soldier who's only authorized to give his war nickname of engineer shows me in my translator, Polina Litvinova, how the Russians had heavily fortified the small farming village. In every high building, they had a so-called ice. So there were like uh, positions from uh, what they were watching. They were very good equipment. The Russians used artillery at first to block engineers' unit from advancing. They mined the edges of town. They built sandbagged machine gun positions. They dug trenches in front of almost every house. So here's Russian weapons, which they used against us. He jokes there are so many spent Russian grenade launchers now lying around that we can take some home as souvenirs. His commander, who goes by the nom de guerre authority, says the Russians didn't give up this territory easily. It was pretty hard because they had heavily fortified positions dug into the ground, so we had to dig them out. This is an area that also backs up against the Russian border, allowing it to be easily resupplied from deeper inside the Russian Federation. Authority shows us a position next to the main road in Borshova, where two Russian armored personnel carriers were hidden in a thicket of trees. He says they would lumber forward on the metal tracks, fire at the advancing Ukrainians, and then retreat back into the bushes. The section of road is now covered in spent bullet casings. Authority says the Russians appeared to have an endless supply of ammunition. The counteroffensive here started on September 5th. In some other places, Russian-backed forces fled ahead of the advancing Ukrainian troops. Authority says that wasn't the case here, and his troops had to use everything they could to dislodge the Russians. We had to use artillery, tanks, howitzers. It took all the artillery we had and the artillery from other battalions. 
It wasn't until the fifth day of Ukrainians pounding Russian positions that he says Moscow's forces started to pull back significantly. And even then, Russian artillery covered their retreat all the way back to the border. In some other parts of the country, like the breakaway areas of the Donbas, Ukrainian troops are going to be up against Russian-backed forces that have had months, even years, to fortify their positions. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We can say one thing for sure. Independent journalism would not be possible without your contribution. I'm Lisa Mullins with Carrie Young. This is uh, one of those times when your contribution can go three times as far. Carrie Young is here to tell us about it. Hi. Yes, Lisa. It is a two for one kind of situation or we will triple it if you want. Either way you think about it, your money is going to go farther right now. Thanks to some members of our Murrow Society. This offer is only available for a limited time. It's just until this twenty five thousand dollars in matching money runs out. So now is a really great time to give. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And our CEO, Margaret Lowe, actually recently talked with Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi about the range and scope of the stories that you can get from WBUR. Let's hear what she has to say. People tell us that they appreciate the nuance and the context, and that's whether we're talking about the war in Ukraine or the death of Queen Elizabeth. And that's just as true in our local coverage, like Martha Biebinger's series from Brockton, where overdose deaths from opioids hit a new high. And Martha reported on that, and she also covered what's being done to address the problem. And the reporting was rigorous, and it was deep, and the storytelling was vivid and sound rich. It was the kind of story that really took you there. And none of these stories could happen without listener support. Listen, listeners who give voluntarily to provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. And that is why your monthly gift is so important right now. Your modest monthly gift will turn into so much more for you and for everyone who listens. So you can start your monthly gift anything like $10, $15 a month, or if you can fit more into your budget, like $100, $150 a month. Any of that would be so helpful. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Right. If you can do a monthly sustainer uh, membership, that would we would so appreciate it. That would help us out in terms of knowing what we have to spend on our reporting, uh, on everything that we present online as well. So right now, because of this triple match, your pledge of $25 a month becomes $75 a month without even affecting your own budget. $75 pledge a month becomes $225 and so on. If you can swing 
as some people can, thank you, $5,000, then that becomes a $15,000 contribution. So we hope right now you'll take advantage of this Morrow Society triple match on the table. We have $25,000 total in the kitty there, and we will let you know just as soon as that runs out, but it hasn't yet. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Think about what it is that you value about WBUR. What is it that makes you listen? What is it that entices you to contribute? We hope you do contribute, but think about uh, what what it means to you. And we have some listener testimonials. We have uh, one here that says, I support free press and appreciate the quality quality content provided by WBUR. Another, I value a non-hyped news outlet. Um, another, I've supported WBR for years, even though I moved from Boston two years ago. I still listen daily, best in NPR station in the country. And um, this one says, if you want quality, you have to pay for it. Simple as that. Public radio delivers with minimum commercial intrusions. That includes both, both live shows and podcasts. And <clears throat> there are many more here. Just think about your own reason for listening to WBUR and appreciating it. And think about what you get here that you don't get elsewhere. And in terms of the hype news, you're not going to get anyone here sort of screaming at you or telling you what to think or trying to alarm you. We're giving you straight ahead news when we have opinion. We don't masquerade and pretend that it's news. We tell you if it's opinion, analysis as well. So if you appreciate that, this is a really transparent deal. We tell you what we're going to give you. We give it to you. We ask you to pay for it. And then we give you more because you have paid for it. So right now, you can triple the value of whatever your gift is. 1-800-909-9287 is the number. Or go to WBR.org. I really like that listener comment. Uh, best rate, best public radio station in the country. I humbly think so too. <laughs> but uh, not that you're biased, right? I mean, I yeah, maybe I am on that one at least. But um, you know, I am. And a you listener. contribute to that, Carrie, with the fantastic things that you do. Honestly, I mean, I know you have a lot of fans out there as well. But but that's the thing. People who work here are fans of the station as well. I know. I am a listener. I know that this makes my commute that much more bearable. It takes an obnoxious amount of time to get through Boston traffic to get here to the studio. So, you know, I turn to WBUR, like I know many of you do too, to help us break down the moment that we're living in. We just heard a lot of really in-depth reporting on Ukraine from NPR. We've also been hearing about news coverage about Hurricane Ian and how Floridians are faring, the number of people who are impacted and are in danger. This is really important coverage that we wouldn't have without listener support. So your modest monthly investment will have deep meaning and a very big impact every day. You can give monthly at WBUR.org. You can also give an individual gift. That works too. Or you can give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Insperity, providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place, with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue. 
at klaviyo.com slash NPR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Hurricane Ian made landfall on Florida's Gulf Coast today as a powerful Category 4 storm. NPR's Greg Allen reports it's moving slowly inland and weakening slightly, but still pummeling a large area near Fort Myers with 140-mile-per-hour winds and a massive storm surge. Ian is a large storm with hurricane-force winds extending some 45 miles from the center. It came ashore at Cayocasta, an island off Fort Myers, the same place Hurricane Charlie made landfall in 2004. The emergency management director in Florida's Charlotte County, Patrick Fuller, is warning residents that Ian is moving slowly. He says some homes are already being flooded. We're going to see life-threatening storm surge. Hopefully those folks in the evacuation areas have left. Um, If you have not left, now is not the time to be on the road. Local, state, and federal authorities have teams ready to go house to house and conduct rescues if necessary, but not until the worst of the storm has passed. Greg Allen, NPR News, St. Petersburg. The Biden administration is promising to be there after Hurricane Ian has passed through, and based on information coming in this evening, there'll be plenty of work to do. Pictures and video on social media are showing widespread devastation from the storm. Earlier today, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says federal disaster officials already have people in place. Already, we have deployed significant federal resources to the region to help prepare for the hurricane. We have more than 1,300 federal response workers on the ground in Florida. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis issued an emergency declaration ahead of the hurricane. And tonight says there are reports of heavy flooding with cities in the storm's path likely to face catastrophic damage. More than a million people in the state are without power. Students at a high school in Morgantown, West Virginia, staged a walkout this afternoon to protest the removal of pride flags from classrooms. As West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Chris Schultz reports, other efforts to allow the flags back have so far failed. Just after the school year start, Monongalia County Superintendent Eddie Campbell had asked schools to remove all pride flags. Campbell cited a county policy that bans political activity in classrooms. Students at Morgantown High School say they staged the walkout after the other attempts to undo the superintendent's decision failed. Morgantown High senior and student leader Lonnie Medley said the pride flag made schools safer for LGBTQ students. There are so many people that don't have accepting homes and school is the only place where they feel safe. Community activists plan to organize more actions like the walkout until the pride flags are allowed back in schools. For NPR News, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The Bank of England has taken what are being described as emergency actions as part of an effort to stabilize financial markets there and backstop the sinking British pound. That translated into higher gains on Wall Street today as well. The Dow 548 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Republican candidate for Massachusetts Governor Jeff Deal wants to increase the state's natural gas pipeline capacity to help Massachusetts residents and businesses cope with high energy costs. 
He also wants to temporarily suspend some of the state's clean energy policies and provide Massachusetts residents with additional tax relief. Deal made his comments at a news conference in Boston today. His Democratic opponent, Maura Healey, is defending the state's clean energy politics, but is calling for additional tax relief for Massachusetts families in the form of child tax credits. The state of Massachusetts has received a new waiver from the federal government that will allow the state to run its own Medicaid program for the next five years. The deal comes just days before the existing waiver was set to expire. Governor Charlie Baker says the agreement will let the state tailor its mass health program for about 2 million low-income residents who get coverage through the program. And a beer garden in Boston City Hall Plaza is reopening for a limited time. It will be operated by 67 Degrees Brewing. That's a black woman and veteran-owned brewery out of Franklin. The beer garden will be open Wednesday through Sunday until early November, weather permitting. Red Sox hope to capitalize on their finally snapping their losing streak last night as they meet the Orioles for game three of their four-game series at Fenway tonight. Rich Hill throws the first pitch at 7-10. It'll be Dean Kramer pitching for Baltimore. Nice night at Fenway and elsewhere. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, clearing by daybreak tomorrow. Lows about 53. And then sunshine tomorrow should reach the mid-60s for a high. 68 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast, Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. Thank you so much if you've made a pledge. If you haven't, right now, call before we go back to All Things Considered to find out the latest from Hurricane uh, Ian, which has touched down in Florida. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. There's a great reason to give, especially right now. And and all of the you who have never given before, especially good reason to give right now as well. Carrie Young is here to tell you about it. Absolutely. So this is kind of a two for one match, or you can think about it tripling your contribution. And so if you can give $10 a month, that turns the contribution into $30 a month. If you can give $100 a month, if that's in your budget, we would greatly appreciate it. But it extends your gift even farther to $300 a month. So this offer is only available until 7 o'clock or until the $25,000 in matching money runs out from our Murrow Society This is really a great time to give, and you can give at WBUR.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-909-9287. You know what your funds in the past have been able to do, or maybe it was uh, uh, your parents' funds previously have been able to bring you podcasts such as Endless Thread, um, consider this, uh, have been able to help us 
establish and grow our website. Look at the fantastic material that we have there. So much original material. We have slideshows. We have we have graphs that will help you go in depth on certain issues. Uh, we have um, uh, videos, in fact, as well. And we have City Space, this terrific venue that we have downstairs on the first floor on Commonwealth Avenue, where we have speakers, entertainment, um, um, uh, arts, education, everything that you can possibly imagine. These are the resources that have been made possible by people before you who have given, and maybe you, if you've been giving for a while. The money that you invest into WBUR right now helps you realize the value of WBUR through the present, through what we give you on air, and then for the future as well. It's a a future investment in your listening. So because all boats rise when you give to WBUR, it helps you, it helps the community, and it helps us as well. Please give right now, one 800 909 9287wbur.org while we have this Morrow Society match on the table, a triple match. Right. Yeah, that's such a great opportunity. Again, it can make your money go so much farther. $10 turns into $30, and that's only good until about 7 o'clock tonight. But Lisa, I really like how you brought up that we offer so much here at WBUR, from City Space events to the videos in particular. I mean, I have been involved in producing a video, the, the one that comes to mind because we're just about to cover the Supreme Court arguments for the Harvard Affirmative Action case. And just putting together a simple explainer piece puts it has it involves rather so much resources from our photographers from us the reporters to write and produce that so please consider supporting activities like that we really take the time to tell stories that you know reveal important truths that explain really complex things wbor has one of the strongest newsrooms in the country and we need your help to maintain it It doesn't have to be a lot. It can be $10 or $15 a month, or it can be more if you'd like, $100 a month, $150, whatever fits into your budget. You can go to WBUR.org to give or give us a call at 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Hurricane Ian made landfall today in southwest Florida as a powerful Category 4 storm with winds at 150 miles per hour. The storm has moved slowly up the state all day long, bringing with it a massive storm surge, flooding, and nonstop rain. The impacts from this storm will be felt for hours and hours in the area. And here to give us an update is NPR's Liz Baker, who is in St. Petersburg, just north of where Ian came ashore. Hey, Liz. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so can you just describe what some of the first impacts of Ian have looked like there? Well, lots of wind so far with gusts over 100 miles per hour. Power is starting to go down all over the coast. I was driving around a little while ago and saw some downed tree branches and some flooded roads. Um, But this area where I'm in isn't feeling the worst of this hurricane. The path of this storm changed pretty significantly in the last day or so, (laughs) shifting the major impact further south to Fort Myers and Punta Gorda. And Ian is now taking the same path that Hurricane Charlie took in 2004. That was another Category 4, by the way, also with 150 mile per hour winds. But Ian is still much bigger and packs a more powerful punch. Wait, so were residents there surprised by this shift in the storm's path? 
Well, they shouldn't have been. Forecasters had warned that people in this area should prepare for a hit like this, even though it did look for a while that the storm might go further to the north. Uh -huh. um, in a briefing this afternoon, Governor Ron DeSantis expressed concern that the change in Ian's path caught some people unaware by the worst part of the storm. There were people that evacuated Tampa Bay to Fort Myers because you see the different weather tracks, and it was thought that it would go hit Tampa, maybe go up the coast, and that was not that long ago. And DeSantis says the Coast Guard and Florida National Guard are standing by to mount a massive rescue effort. Hmm. Well, Liz, it's actually not the wind that's the most dangerous here. It's the water, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, especially this big storm surge that we've seen. Yeah. It might end up being as high as 18 feet of seawater coming on shore. Yeah. Um, I've been seeing some photos on Twitter from Fort Myers Beach, which show water over the first floor of homes there now. And uh, you can see on traffic webcams from Sanibel Island, water overtaking the roads very, very, very quickly. In just about 20 minutes, it goes from dry to overflowing. And that really shows you why the storm surge is such a major concern here. Um, around noon, Tampa Bay actually had a reverse surge, which means that the direction of the hurricane spin pulled water out of the bay. And enough people went down to see that rare view of a waterless waterfront that the wow. police had to ask people to please stop hurricane sightseeing right now. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we heard Governor DeSantis there talk about evacuating. Any idea how many people might have just stayed behind instead of evacuating? It's hard to know. Um, authorities believe that the majority of people have evacuated, especially the most dangerous areas like barrier islands. Um, but, you know, there's always people who stay home either because they can't afford to leave or they don't want to or even they underestimate the risk. Um, so earlier today, I was out driving around a mobile home park in St. Petersburg and came across 90-year-old Paul Lycia. He was packing a few things into his car because he had planned on evacuating later tonight, but then decided to leave early. His family helped convince him that it just wasn't worth the risk of staying, even with a roof strapped down against the wind. You don't know, you know, that's the problem. I said, you know, we have the hurricane straps here. I said, the house will be gone, but the straps will be here with the chassis, so family's after me to get out of town. <laughs> He's planning on driving north to get out of the storm's path, and also that'll be a pretty long drive because this is a huge storm, almost 250 miles across. That is NPR's Liz Baker in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. No state in the eastern U.S. has grown faster in recent years than Florida. There are three million more people living there now than there were in 2010, which means more people in buildings than ever are in the path of destructive hurricanes like Ian. NPR's Becky Sullivan is here to talk more about this. Hi, Becky. Hey there. So we'll get back to the hurricane in a moment. But for now, mm -hmm. let's just zoom out. Becky, why has Florida seen this big influx of people in the last decade? You know, people come to Florida for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's warm year round. There are beaches. Housing there is relatively cheap. Um, a big one is there's no individual income tax, which is great if you're retired. Uh, and then for retired people and immigrants, especially, there are, there are a lot of big communities of people there like them. So all of this means that even as overall U.S. population growth has slowed to a crawl, Florida is still growing. Something like 600 Americans move to Florida every day, according to the Census Bureau, which is way more than any other state. Um, and so across the country since 2010, only two other big metro areas have grown faster than Orlando. Jacksonville and Tampa uh, are near the top of that list, too. And then smaller cities like Fort Myers and Cape Coral have also grown a ton. Um, and, you know, some of those cities, Fort Myers, Tampa, of course, here on the west coast of Florida, bearing the brunt of Hurricane Ian right now. 
And Becky, more people means that more folks are likely to feel the impact of a natural disaster, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, It's more likely than ever that a hurricane will strike a major population center in Florida because there's so many more of them and because they're bigger. I talked to a researcher about this. Uh, His name is Stephen Strader, a professor at Villanova who studies how humans are vulnerable to natural disasters. He called Florida's population boom an example of the, quote, expanding bullseye effect. Mm. Basically, he said, imagine an archer drawing a bow, taking aim at a target. If the target is really small, it's hard to hit. But if it gets bigger and bigger, it gets easier and easier to strike. The difference is, is instead of an arrow, we have hazard events like hurricanes and tornadoes. And then instead of having targets, we are the targets. Our cities are developed areas. And nowhere is that most readily seen is along our coastline. Another way of looking at it is uh, billion-dollar storms used to be very rare. Now there are 10 or more every year. The most costly storm ever was Katrina in 2005, followed by Harvey in 2017. And depending on how Ian plays out over these next few days, um, it could be up there. Becky, we heard from a climate scientist earlier this week about how warmer temperatures are linked to higher intensity storms. So Mm -hmm. walk us through in the minute we have left the challenges posed by that, plus a growing population. Yeah. You know, experts told me that this is a huge communication challenge for local officials um, because newcomers to Florida aren't always educated about hurricanes. They might not know the answers to questions like, how sturdy is your house? Do you have impact windows or hurricane shutters? Are you in a flood-prone area? Do you know the evacuation route? Or if you plan to stay, do you have the supplies you need? Um, You know, because experience matters. People who who have been through hurricanes before are better prepared for the next one. Um, But this is a part of Florida that has been relatively lucky in recent years in terms of hurricane frequency. The last sort of big one was in 2017. A lot of people moved to the area since then. So bottom line, you know, essentially every city we've named in this segment is going to feel this hurricane. Uh, Even the inland cities like Orlando and Lakeland could see some massive rainfall, which can cause major damage, as we know uh, from other storms like Harvey. So if you're in Florida right now, it is very important to listen to local officials to take every measure that you can uh, to be safe through this. NPR's Becky Sullivan, thank you. You're welcome. Drugs like magic mushrooms and LSD can act as powerful antidepressants, but they also produce mind-bending side effects. Well, NPR's John Hamilton reports on a drug based on LSD that appears to treat depression in mice without taking the animals on a trip. Antidepressants like Prozac act on the brain's serotonin system. So do psychedelic drugs. But with psychedelics, the effect can occur in hours instead of weeks and last for months. Brian Scheuchert from the University of California, San Francisco, says the best evidence so far involves people with depression who take psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. There's really interesting reports about people getting great results out of this after just a few doses. One study found the results can last a year or more, perhaps because the drug causes the brain to rewire. Psychedelic drugs, though, require medical supervision and a therapist to guide a patient through their hallucinatory experience. Shoykit says that's an impractical way to treat millions of people with depression. The society would like a molecule that you can, you know, get prescribed and just take, you know, go home and and take, and you don't need a guided tour for your trip. So Shoykit and a large team of researchers are looking for that molecule. They started with a virtual collection of about 75 million hypothetical drugs likely to act on the brain's serotonin system. Shoykit says ultimately the scientists focused on just two. They had the best properties. They were the most potent, 
And when you gave them to a mouse, they got into the brain at high concentrations. A test of one of these drugs found it did seem to relieve depression in mice. A depressed mouse tends to give up quickly when placed in an uncomfortable situation, like being dangled from its tail. But the same mouse will keep struggling if it gets an antidepressant drug like Prozac, ketamine, or psilocybin. Dr. Brian Roth, a psychiatrist at UNC Chapel Hill and another member of the team, says the molecule based on LSD had a similar effect. We found our compound had essentially the same antidepressant activity, at least acutely, so one day later. But were those mice tripping? Apparently not. Psychedelic drugs cause mice to twitch frequently in a distinctive way, and Roth says that wasn't the case with mice that got the team's LSD-based compound. We were, I would say, surprised to see that they had no psychedelic drug-like actions at all. Studies in people are still a ways off. Even so, Roth says the approach points to a class of depression drugs that would have a huge advantage over products like Prozac and Zoloft, which are taken every day. The difference with psychedelics and the compounds that we're excited about is that it's basically one and done. Patients basically take one dose, and then they're fine. That's an optimistic view, says David Olson of the University of California, Davis. Olson, who helped create a non-psychedelic version of the drug Ibogaine, says he's skeptical that a single dose of these new compounds can eliminate depression. But I do think they take us a step closer to a cure rather than simply treating disease symptoms. Olson says drugs based on psychedelics have the potential to help people who haven't responded to existing antidepressants. And because they work immediately, he says, they could be integrated into a psychotherapy session. You might imagine a day where a patient could take one of these drugs at home and then interact with their therapist via virtual platform like Zoom. The new research appears in the journal Nature. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks have rebounded from their low of the year. The Dow snapped its six-day losing streak today. It gained 1.88 percent, or 549 points, to close at 29,684. S&P picked up nearly 2 percent to finish at 37.19. The Nasdaq rose a little more than 2 percent to close at 11,052. Some clouds collecting early tonight, then clearing out for the bulk of the night. Lows about 53. Tomorrow, mainly sunshine, although it should make it only to the mid-60s, a little bit breezy tomorrow as well. And then for Friday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies, about 63 degrees tops. And as of right now, anyway, it's looking like we should have some clouds move in for the weekend. 66 degrees now in Boston at 623. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. So here's what's happening. We are uh, starting to wind down our fall fund drive. We rely on you for more than half of our operating budget. So if you haven't given yet, we hope you will. If you haven't given ever, we hope you will. And there are lots of reasons why. We will tell you one reason that is front and center right now. Carrie Young is going to tell you about Right. So some of the members of the Murrow Society are providing funding for this two-for-one match, or it triples your contribution, however you want to think about it. That's going to turn your $10 a month into $30, $25 into $75, or if you have a little bit more room in your budget, $300 into $900. Now, this available isn't available forever, or this offer isn't available forever. So it's 
it's available until 7 o'clock or until the $25,000 in matching money runs out. So right now is a really good time to give. Help your contribution go that much farther. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. And over the last decade in this country, we've seen a real divide between what goes on at regular radio stations and here on public radio. Regular radio gets more homogenized every year. The same few formats everywhere, not a lot of personality. There are a couple good shows here and there, but by and large, it's pretty repetitive. Meanwhile, public radio just gets bigger and bigger. It's sort of corny, but I think that's because what happens here every day, among other things, just has more heart. Even on our worst day, on our worst show, you can tell that we are here for idealistic reasons. We want news that's more in-depth. We want real analysis of what's going on around us. We want to know about new music that's not being played elsewhere, new writers we might like. And there's still the idea here every day that part of our job is to invent something new right here on the radio. It's a public space, a public square, and it's funded by public support. That's people like you and me who believe in this kind of thing. We pitch in together. We hope you can help out. It's a great time to help out right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. What Ira Glass was saying there <clears throat> is so true, and Carrie Young, I'm thinking that maybe we should have a T-shirt next time that reads, We're Not Regular Radio. We are not regular radio. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about being idealistic. It doesn't mean that we have uh, an ideology that we're trying to push. It means that those of us who work on this station are proud of it, are fans of it ourselves, listen to it, go online and read what's there, see what's there, attend city space events on our own. And we know that you listen to WBUR because you're getting something that you don't get anywhere else. Part of the deal is we can do that because we don't have commercial funding. We're not beholden to commercial interests. We are beholden to you and we need your support. You make up the majority of our budget. So do your part right now, especially while we have this generous offer on the table from the Morrow Society. Right. And that offer is a two for one or a tripling of your contribution. Ten turns to thirty dollars. Twenty five turns into seventy five dollars. And, you know, I was just thinking back to Ira Glass's comment there about how we're not regular radio in the sense that, you know, we have programming like This American Life on our radio. And that is one of my personal favorites. It has been for years. It just feels eternally good <laughs> to me because it's 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 not news. We've been hearing a lot of news this hour. It is drive time. And it's important to stay up to date on things like Hurricane Ian and the war in Ukraine. But you also get more lighthearted things and things that make maybe your weekend chores a little bit easier, like the stories on This American Life, what it's like at summer camp, <laughs> or they stationed reporters at a rest stop in upstate New York one time, just things that are interesting to listen to, also equally interesting driveway moments. So please consider supporting programming, the hard news, the lighter stories that just make you laugh. You can go to WBUR.org to give or 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-929-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you.
Thank you very much. I bet that happens a lot that you listen. You don't expect that you're going to be gripped by some story, but you are. So think of the last time that happened. Think of the last time you learned something from uh, WBUR or something made you laugh or something made you change your mind about or at least give you pause about something that you thought you'd established your opinion on. That's what you get from WBUR. You get back what you give. So please make a contribution right now to keep it coming. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And we have heard from a couple of people that have gone to WBUR.org for their contribution. And we have some listener comments. One of them is, WBUR and NPR are a breath of fresh air during this time of misinformation. Thank you for the reporting that you provide. Another listener says that they listen to WBUR each morning in order to focus their own efforts on reducing climate change. That's a very good point. We have an entire team here at WBUR that's focused on the climate and the impacts of climate change. That is what your support you know, helps keep going. So you can go to WBUR.org for a modest monthly gift, $10, $15. More, if you have it, we will take what fits in your budget. You can also go to, or you can also call, rather, 1-800-909-9287. And we have uh, a few more of these listener testimonials. WBUR sets the bar for accredited journalism and doesn't stop at delivering news at face value. It really digs into the why behind a news story that you can't find from other sources, and it was high time I contributed my share to keep them going. Plus, the sweatshirt looks sweet. We'll talk about the sweatshirt later. Or if you want to find out, then just call 1-800-909-9287, and you can ask the person on the other end of the phone all about the sweatshirt. So whatever you find resonant with your own reason for listening to WBUR, put a dollar value on it, decide what it's worth, make it affordable, and call us, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And right now, get your pledge matched, or tripled, that is, only until 7 o'clock tonight. Call now. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Huntington Theatre presenting Sing Street, a new musical based on the hit indie film, Huntington Calderwood BCA through October 9th, HuntingtonTheatre.org. And Davis Malm, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. 